remember when I was about five or six, I was sexually attracted to Bugs Bunny. And I, I cut out this Bugs Bunny off the cover of a comic book and carried it around with me, carried it around in my pocket and took it out and looked at it periodically. And, and it got all wrinkled up from handling it so much that I asked my mother to iron it on the ironing board to flatten it out. And she did, and I was deeply disappointed because it got all brown when she ironed it and brittle and it crumbled apart. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I had this sexual attraction to cute cartoon characters. <laughs> you tell me. I don't know. Glad we got all that on recording. <laughs> that's not in the show. Don't worry about that. <laughs> that's, get, that's out of here. That is... <laughs> Strike that from the record. <laughs> Stenographer. Your Honor, I take no responsibility. It is Documentary Month here on Why Is This a Thing? Week two of Documentary Month. Gentlemen, we are recovering from a four-hour live stream extravaganza during the Oscars last night, or two nights ago. Feels like last night. I have yet to recover from... It feels like it should be Thursday this week, but it's only Tuesday. It's only Tuesday. Uh, I haven't recovered from the push-ups that I've done, the drinks that I consumed, all the awards that All Quiet on the Western Front took home. <laughs> it's uh, it's a tough scene. I know. <laughs> everyone's, everyone's least favorite movie of all time now, no, All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm glad everybody's come around to my way of thinking. <laughs> Oh, uh, it's all it took was four Oscars. That's right. <laughs> it's a piece of shit. You were so ahead of your time, Nick. That's right, Nick. Um, yeah, but we we made it. Thank you to everybody that joined us for that live stream. It was a great time. Uh, we had some laughs. We're back to the business at hand of covering the best nonfiction. I should not maybe the best, but the weirdest and most offbeat nonfiction films of all time. That's right. Yeah. And I chose this week. A movie from 1995 called Crumb. I guess we've picked some older documentaries, but I feel like we typically don't. What was that bug documentary thing? <laughs> oh, yeah. The Hellstrom Chronicles. The Hellstrom Oh, Chronicles. right. God, that's a deep pull, Adam. Holy <laughs> shit. Not a single person who listens to this show knows what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, they, that is how deep a pull that they is. They are long gone. Anyone that was around <laughs> during the Hellstrom Chronicle days. Oscar winner, right? Hellstrom Chronicle. It was an Oscar winner. Here's a movie, Crumb, not Oscar nominated. Really? Did not even get a nod in 1995. Are you surprised? I mean, I guess not, but... I get it, but, like, th This is around the time that Hoop Dreams was also not nominated for Best Documentary, and since then, the rules have changed for how the Documentary Nominating Committee conducts their business, but uh, there was a better documentary that came out in 1995 than Crumb? Let's pull up what the hell was nominated that year. The Battle Over Citizen Kane. Okay, well, there we go. Sure. <laughs> Fiddlefest. Robert Guaspari Savaris and her East Harlem violin program. Okay. <laughs> That's a title. <laughs> Hank Aaron chasing the dream. All right. What about uh, one of the uh, great sluggers of all time? Mm -hmm. Troublesome Creek, a Midwestern. Don't know what that is, but uh, <laughs> and Frank remembered was the thing that won. Ironically, a movie that has been forgotten. <laughs> We have forgotten and Frank remembered, but we have remembered Crumb. This movie was, I believe, Gene Siskel's number one film of 1995. Siskel and Ebert adored it. 
Ebert gave it a four-star review and included it in his collection of great movies. So that's saying an awful lot. Uh, the director of this movie, Terry Zilwig, went on to direct Bad Santa many years later. Mm. Um, this is a movie that he worked on for nine years. He was friends with Robert Crumb um, long before production on the documentary began, and this helped launch his directing career. So this is a very important movie in the underground comics world and in the sort of counterculture world in general. Um, I had never seen it, but I had known the myth, and my goodness, did it live up to the hype. I fucking love this movie. This movie is incredible. This movie's so good, guys. Crumb is a fascinating figure. Uh, mm. Not a good guy. I think kind of transcends the good-bad binary. Right. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's hard to describe him because... I don't know, when you hear the guy talk, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, he's a weird guy, but he seems nice. And then you look at some of his drawings and you're like, holy fuck, this guy was disturbed. And then you ask him, are you disturbed? And he'd be like, yeah, I think I am a little disturbed. I had some problems and yeah, I hate women. And and he just says these things so matter of factly. Yeah. The documentary itself, if we want to talk about best editing for a moment. <laughs> Uh, that's a, <laughs> our favorite Oscar category. Our favorite Oscar category. Yeah. It's set up. It's conceit is fairly straightforward. It's uh, some clips of people talking, either crumb or people close to him. And then we'll do a montage of his illustrations. Then back to people talking, montage of his illustrations. It's, it's not uh, groundbreaking in that sense. It is purely the subject matter that is unique. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm maybe not even unique, but unique for films. Like th- this is a sure. uh, uh, a subsection of our population that we don't usually point cameras in the direction of. Well, also just the fact that this man was so um, renowned. He 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 made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. He got a lot of recognition. He won awards for his illustrations. Yes, and it's uh, well, okay. I, I would say the focus of this movie, although they do spend a lot of time on his work and his influence, they specifically interview a critic from Time Magazine who speaks glowingly of him and his influence on the culture. Um, but the movie isn't really interested in that. The movie is more interested in him and his family and his family is featured i mean the first 45 minutes of this movie are dominated by his family uh, and I, I find it really interesting how they sort of unspool all of the information if you did not know the premise of the movie going in and they did not spend the first like minute or so explaining who robert crumb was like i don't i don't think you would expect that he is a world-renowned um artist and they they bury the lead so much. An hour into the movie, finally we're at a gallery, and finally there are some people talking about his work. But for the most part, this is a movie about a very disturbed family, haunted by trauma, uh, a brother who somehow is the skeleton key in all of this, um, who is deeply unwell, heavily medicated, and is a is a recluse, does not leave the house, um, and. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen a documentary quite like it. And I know those people exist, like, theoretically, in the abstract. They don't exist in the public. Right. Right. They don't exist on screen. I mean, whether documentarians are in search of people like that or if people like that are welcoming to a camera crew, um, I'm not sure which is which, but, like, 
we don't see people like that. Um, and this movie says, let's go there. You know, you can easily do the sort of 60 minute style biography of his life and his influence and his marriages or whatever. Um, but this movie dares to go deeper, you know, that I think would be a very we would see a very polished version of him. Uh, Adam just lost power. Is that what happens? Yes. I was very curious. <laughs> there he is. Hello. Welcome back. I was on such a roll. I mean, my commentary was so insightful. <laughs> Cut it off <laughs> at the optimal moment there. What kind of bullshit do you have to say about Robert Crumb and his family? I, I think he's only interesting with his family. That's what I that's what I think. I was not particularly engaged by the guy un- until we contrasted him with the work that he was doing and um, the his relationship with his brothers primarily and and also the relationship he had with his uh, his his wife and his exes and his his family i think the way he interacts with his wives is also really interesting very telling yeah Th- that's the fascinating part i think all on his own though this it's I, not an issue with the movie i really like the movie but all on his own i kind of found him to be a giant cliche <laughs> as a person oh him himself yeah, yeah. like he, like he's just a he's a caricature of like every uh, like like faux edge counterculture guy that says I just just don't don't want to sell out with all this money you know I right. just I just think it's all bullshit all these guys just take your work and downgrade it into this like corporate fascist dictate it's just a bunch of bullshit man it's just it's just it's that character <laughs> for two hours basically when he's getting interviewed I think there's a journalist from some publication that's interviewing him at a coffee shop and he goes on and on about how everyone has a boombox with them. People People are wearing Giants and Raiders jerseys everywhere. They're advertising for other brands. The whole culture is one unified field of bought, sold, market, researched, everything. You know, it used to be that people fermented their own culture. You know, it took hundreds of years and it evolved over time. And, you know, that's gone in America. People now don't even have any concept that there ever was a, a culture outside of this thing that's created to make money. Yeah, that stuff, I think, you know, in 1995, it was out of fashion. You know, never mind 2023. <laughs> I've seen so, so many real life people and so many movie characters like that, that I was just like, fuck off, bro. It, it made him uh, uh, more unlikable than he already was. That doesn't mean I thought he was a... <laughs> now, that doesn't mean I thought he was a bad character. Like, for, for a subject, though... Um, he's, he's, uh, he's quite the colorful dude. And again, I, I, I still think if it wasn't for the people in his orbit, the movie wouldn't really have worked for me. Like if it was just like him waxing poetic about art and comics. Oh, you don't have a movie without his family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 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 Not at all. Not at all. It's interesting. You talk about how he, he's so averse to selling out and how when Hollywood comes calling, he hangs up the phone. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this movie is because the 70s film Fritz the Cat, based on his comics, is one that I've been circling for a while. Um, it was the first X-rated cartoon, mm-hmm. and it came out, I think, in 1978, 1979, and it's directed by this guy, Ralph Bakshi, who uh, ended up making the Lord of the Rings animated films in the 80s and was a big counterculture figure himself. And I always thought that Crumb was involved in the production of that movie because I assumed the movie is so transgressive and 
it was so controversial at the time. Well, clearly he was involved in it. And it's so funny. We have to do this movie at some point now that he finds that, you know, commercially sort of emotionally vacant, you know, and I think that's so interesting, you know, that like the, the most controversial animated movie ever made is too mainstream for him. It's like it's an X rated movie and that's just how it is. But my takeaway from that was funny. He's the kind of guy who, I don't know, maybe maybe thrives off of like being actually miserable or pretending to be miserable. Like the movie's made before he's making this big move to Paris. Mm -hmm. Um, And he talks about like, you know, I just want to go to Paris just because it's, you know, it's better than living in in America, which I think Paris is slightly less evil. But (laughs) Uh, but building up to the actual move, he's like, why the fuck am I going to Paris? Like, why right. Why would I want to do that? And I don't think he understands, like, I don't know, like, <laughs> the society he's grown up in is exactly the thing I think he needs. So it's, it's be, it'd be interesting. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what his life was like once he moved to Paris, but. He kind of straightened out. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. He ended up doing a, a book of illustrations on the book of Genesis. Really? Oh, wow. And he included, you know, the sex in, in the book of Genesis, he included explicitly in this, in this book of illustrations, but it was not like vulgar and over the top and pornographic. It was not satirical at all. He was, he was truly interested in, in illustrating the Bible. And he did that. There's a lot of sex in Genesis. A lot of it. <laughs> a tremendous amount. Well, I mean, it kind of, that's kind of jumpstarted the whole thing. Yeah. The whole thing, you know, the whole people. So, yeah, he did that. Um, you know, he's 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 I think still doing his thing. His son, I think, died a few years ago. Really? Yeah. His mm-hmm. wife passed away, I think, last year. Um, but he's still, I think, chugging along. I, I don't I don't really know if the move to Paris worked out for him or not. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I mean, what's his daughter doing? I think his daughter became an artist herself and I I think was very big in France. And I mean, here's the thing about this movie is all of the people involved as, you know, disturbed as they are portrayed in the movie and they are truly disturbed people ended up doing well. Um, His brother, Max, who is the guy that swallows a piece of cloth every day and meditates on a bed of nails, ended up becoming a very uh, successful artist in the wake of this. His his prints ended up selling for high amounts of money as a consequence of this movie. Um, you know, Crumb himself, I think, experienced kind of a career uh, renaissance. So it, I think it worked out for them. Obviously, his brother Chuck, who is, I would say, the key to this whole story, um, kills himself a year after in one of the most disturbing where are they now title cards I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, just absolutely knocked me out. Um when that happened um just because the movie talks so frankly about his mental illness and his suicide attempts and the fact that he doesn't leave the house and um let's talk about chuck for a second so charles you read any good books lately (laughs) yeah i guess i have i don't know (sighs) seem to be kind of like recycling a lot of these books what do you mean by recycling like you're kind of reading I mean, you read them all year twenty years ago. Now you're reading them yeah, all again. I'm reading them again, yeah. I do, I, do, I do that because there's nothing else to do. You've read them all. You ever read anything new? I haven't know? read Kant yet or Hegel. Really? No. You have any interest in that? Maybe kind I'll of eventually stuff? get around to reading them. I don't know. 
Who we love a Chuck, don't we? A brother named Chuck. Yeah, a brother Chuck, no less. Yeah, that's the thing. That kills himself. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that influenced your entire career path and trajectory. Little thievery, Vince Gilligan. Uh, Is that what I'm sensing? Uh, what a hack! <laughs> what a hack! <laughs> <laughs> Just the fucking plot to Better Call Saul. For those who don't know what we're referencing and think we sound crazy. <laughs> I'm sure there's a listener going, what the fuck are they talking about? So I just wanted to clear the. <laughs> so what's wrong with Chuck? Well, he doesn't bathe. So that's that's one thing. One little thing. God, everyone in this movie must stink. Fucking dis- you can smell this movie. You can, dude. It's bad. Yeah, this is a family and community of people that reek. Yeah. Yeah, Chuck, I don't know. Like, is he a schizophrenic? Is he autistic? Like, they don't really ever say. There are flashes where he seems like a pretty charming, articulate guy. I kind of get the impression that this family doesn't really care. They're like, Chuck, he's our brother. That's who he is. He's our son. Right. And that's it. That's, that's, oh, he's got problems and we're going to help him. And that's it. And that's, that's as far as they seem to care. Well, he's, he's never, he's never diagnosed. He's just some guy that had a, I don't know, maybe it's a severe case of arrested development. And he, he's, he's been living at home his entire life mm-hmm. and doesn't really take good care of himself. Chuck himself does say, though, that he has like intense narcissistic behavior and potential homicidal drives at times. Uh, yes, that was a harrowing scene. Yeah. He uh, explicitly tells Robert Crumb that uh, there were nights where I would just sit up all night just resisting the urge to go grab a knife and stab you in the heart. Charles confessed to me when we were adults that there was a while when we were teenagers that he had to stifle the urge to stick a butcher knife through my heart. Like he'd be laying in bed at night fighting the urge to go down the kitchen and get the knife out. And I'd go down in the basement and get an axe and bash your skull in the <laughs> axe in this. He said, ah, and he didn't he believe just, it. He thought it was all part of the act. And then Robert's just laughing. Yeah. That was the thing about that dynamic. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the whole movie, he's laughing. He's just like, oh, you wanted to kill me. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't he also describe going into the basement, grabbing the axe the and axe. hacking his face to bits? Bludgeoning your head to death. I'm like, yes. what the hell? The thing is, everybody in the room understands that he's being completely serious. Yes. Like, this is not a joke. They're not cracking jokes back and forth. They are talking frankly and seriously about Chuck's actual mental illness, whatever it may be. And Chuck is now medicated. So I think that's why they kind of are able to laugh at it. Okay. I mean, yeah, he's medicated. Like, he's alive. He's able to speak. He says he feels better. Well, clearly not, though. I mean, clearly not. Well, I mean, it's it, like this was all a house of yes. cards that came tumbling down immediately after the movie was filmed. But in his own words, while it was being filmed, he did say, you know, I don't feel like I'm fighting these tendencies anymore. I don't feel like I he felt certainly, I think, in a better place. But obviously he still had pretty severe problems. I don't know. Yes. And it's tough for us to talk about without having those details. And it's there's this scene at the beginning where the the producers are talking to Robert and saying, hey, we want to film your brother. And he calls his brother or he calls his mother, maybe, and says, like, hey, we want to we want to come over. We want to film you and Chuck. And we just hear, oh, he doesn't want to do it. Oh, well, I think his mother was deciding for him. It's Probably. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bizarre situation. As you mentioned, he doesn't shower. 
he has never held a job for longer than a couple months. And this is like 20 to 30 years before the documentary is filmed. He sits in his room and reads the same books over and over again, barely leaves. Uh, It just does not groom himself in any way, shape or form. And when he and his brother speak about the past and they tell stories about his struggles, they they do this weird sort of both of them are cackling. It's gallows humor. Is it, though? But sometimes they're not even joking, though. He plays it off as like, ah, oh, this guy is just <laughs> Chuck oh, always the- getting into trouble. Oh, you got the axe tonight, ah, you, you idiot. Yeah, like he's just like <laughs> that friend that just, oh, just another character, you yep. know what I mean? Like, uh, that's who he is. We do love him. He's our brother, though. You know, it, and it's, you know, it's not that. It's clearly not that. There are screws loose that need to be taken care of and they are never really addressed. And I think that is kind of the MO of this family is like Barry, Barry, Barry. And I think maybe to a certain extent too, Robert's uh, processing mechanism for all of this trauma is to channel it into his art. And that is the thing with artists. Sometimes it's like you do a lot of drugs, you experience a lot of heartbreak, you break the law, you do all of these bad things to the people around you and your art, is better for it and you are rewarded financially for it. And I think maybe his lack of actually dealing with these problems has created a negative feedback loop. You know what I mean? Where it's like all of his sexism, all of his racism, all of the, you know, the, uh, the undealt with trauma of his like abusive alcoholic father has helped him in life. So why address it? Well, the answer is because eventually, like, you're going to cross a line. And the line did get crossed, and his brother killed himself the next year, you know? So that's the thing with artists. And it's like, we sit around, and we're like, oh, like, this shit's awesome. Like, these comics are really funny, and I think elements of them are quite beautiful. But, like, it's tough seeing how the sausage is made, you know? And that's how the sausage is made. That's the kind of guy that thinks up something like this, you know? It's not the guy, the, 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 you know, the... The guy that's part of the what's the Harvard um, uh, is it the Harvard Lampoon? Is that what it's called? There you go. Harvard Lampoon. World's oldest continually published uh, humor magazine. So it's not those Ivy Leaguers with like, you know, the buttoned up suits and I'm I'm going to Harvard to study irony and satire. Like it's great comedy and great art isn't a consequence of that. Great comedy and great art is the consequence of trauma. And often severe trauma. It's Richard Pryor getting raised in a brothel. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's that. Well, those people, these people you're talking about too, the people who need the trauma, they're almost like living examples of irony in that way. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of my favorite things about the documentary is this weird conflict that Robert clearly has where it's like his artwork is clearly very nostalgic and inspired by sort of older period ideals. And like, even when he's satirizing the fifties, there's clearly like a very strange love for it. I think that comes through with his, the music he's interested in. And just like probably a, a, I don't know, this view of like an alternative history where the parents like raised them properly in their own little like confined 50s image. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet like, like you know, like his art clearly is, it's also very, very, very gross and satirical of all those things. And it's like, I'm, I don't know, he's a very conflicting figure. I can never figure out if he wants a good version of the art he's making or if he j- is he's, he's happy with the ugly side of it. I don't know. Yeah, he kind of just draws with reckless abandon. And he edits later, you know, he sent it to a, 
a publisher and he's like, which do you think are acceptable to uh, be printed? You know, but he just kind of draws. Um, and it's, it, you know, to a certain extent, it is kind of like an inspiring portrait of an artist. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, oh, geez, like, are we really going that deep into the psyche here? Like, we probably all have an element of this shit if we dig hard enough. Like, we probably all have some kind of fetish or some kind of resentment towards something or someone or some group or whatever. But, like, is it worth sharing that? I don't know. He doesn't have to dig very deep either. Well, he doesn't have to dig very deep. That's true. He's very, he's an open. That that's one of the things that I think is very interesting about him talking, though, is just how open he is about everything. Incredibly open. Yeah. 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 But that's what's gotten him to this point, though. That's the thing. It's like we have encouraged, and I mean, we as in like the culture of the seventies and eighties had encouraged that. You know, uh, everything that he's ever gotten in life that's been positive is a consequence of him being himself. You know, it's the Kanye West thing. It's like you have you have been nothing but erratic and bipolar and uh, confrontational to everyone in your life, and you have gotten nothing but success. And so why would you not push the boundaries even further? You know, we act so shocked when he goes on Alex Jones and starts endorsing Nazis. It's like, well, you know, we've been encouraging him to dig deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper for good art. And then he ends up here and it's like, well, why would he stop? Maybe maybe there's something fundamental about human nature where it's actually not good to get too artistic, to dig too deep. Right. You mean just for your own (laughs) mental health and stuff like that? For anyone. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about uh, this guy. It's like and I think also to a certain extent, too. Is it worth breaking the eggs to make an omelet? I mean, Depends, though. How racist is the omelet? Because <laughs> I don't think I want a racist omelet. I think I'll pass. How sexist is the omelet? The, the, the sexism in this omelet is unbelievable. It's really amazing. <laughs> I, prefer, I prefer there to not be any uh, isms in my omelets. <laughs> I, I will say, as I was watching this, and the, what was she, a publisher for, was it Mother Jones, the magazine? I think she was describing the comic strip of the um, the incestuous orgy, you know, between like a, a father, mother, and their children. And I'm, uh, you know, they're essentially like a, a visual version of the aristocrats joke. Specifically, this story is a story about a father who commands his daughter to give him a blowjob, and she does, and they wind up having sex, and the little sort of leave-it-to-beaver type brother character comes running in and sees the father and the sister, and he's shocked and upset, and he goes running to the mother to tell her, and mom comes out of a closet wearing sort of S&M kind of get up and and the little boy says, oh, cool, you know, and the next thing, mom and mom and son are having sex and the whole panel ends, the whole cartoon ends with the parents saying, gee, we should spend more time with the kids, you know, or something like that, very funny. Um, so, you know, you read something like this and I think that it has gone over the line from satire of um, a 1950s hygienic, you know, uh, family in denial into something which is just Crumb producing pornography. And I think this theme in his work is omnipresent. It's part of an arrested juvenile vision. This is way over the line. This is overly pornographic. He is getting off on this for kind of a lame punchline at the end. 
And I don't know. I'm I'm watching this and her description of it, and I'm like, yeah, lady, you're right. But I'm fascinated by it. I'm there is something about this that is fascinating to me. You know, like I am I'm really enamored and engaged in your description of this debauchery, you know? And I think it's worth it. I do. I think it's worth it. I don't know it. if I, I don't know if I can, uh, I, I don't know. I don't think I was that interested. In I, it. I, I was kind of interested in the Mr. Natural story. Oh, yeah. With, with the headless woman. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, though, I, I'm not sure how interested I would have been in it if someone else were explaining it. But when Robert was explaining it, it was, mm-hmm. it was engaging. When confronted, when people say, hey, your work clearly shows that you have misogyny uh, that you think of black people in a possibly less than negative light. Actually, not even possibly. Um, when, when he's confronted with this, he kind of is like, yeah, my work has made me realize that about myself. And he doesn't say it in a way that he say, first off, he doesn't argue and say, no, I'm not. And second off, he doesn't argue and say, well, what I think is right. He's like, I acknowledge that these thoughts are wrong and hurtful, uh, maybe to others. And I acknowledge that I have them. And he's like, and I think that's just the way I am. And I don't know why. And he says, he even mentions like, you know, I just draw for me. And, you know, should people like my work? I don't know. But I just, I can't stop doing it. Yeah. He says like, I can't help it or something like that. Yeah. He's like, I can't I, stop doing I, it. I, I, I'm going to keep drawing. And if people want to buy it, put it up, put it in a comic, whatever. But like, I'm just drawing. I'm, and most of this is uh, LSD fueled drug trips. He's just drawing literally just whatever comes to mind. Yeah. There's something interesting about that where he's saying, this is just me digging really deep into my psyche and looking at how fucked up I really am. Mm-hmm. Not justifying it. I find it compelling. I do. I find his drawings very compelling. I think he's a really interesting artist. I, tr- I truly do believe that. And his brand of satire, although maybe over the line, is. It's effective. Like th- that the comic strip about the family orgy, that is effective satire of the the American dream, you know, of the suburban two and a half kids, you know, and a dog. It is. I mean, like much like the aristocrats joke is and there's perverse humor in there. And I think I find the aristocrats joke in itself just a little crude, though, and over the top to it's, make the it's point. The it's the same thing. So, though. I mean, it's sure. the same. Th- like that is the point. The fact that it is over the line is the point of it. Like I said, it's it, the, the story. The, his artwork is, you know, good. I kept thinking it was a darker version of Shel Silverstein, mm. which is fine by me. I yes. guess. But yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I don't know. It's like his artwork's good. It's not really what I was, um, what I was watching it for at a certain point, though. I think yeah, we've already circled around it anyway. But it was just this guy's relationships were really what were fascinating to me. I learned I learned a lot more about. Uh, like genuinely learn something about the guy through his conversations with his other people, uh, often just his exes. I love the conversation he has with that one woman on the roof, and uh, she's talking about how like you know you never listen to me, you never you never really like paid attention, you never you understood on why me I constantly. Would be- yeah, yeah, you never understood why I would be upset, and he's got this very like like strangely controlling way about him, always grabbing her arm and pulling her, and you know, and it's always a- playful. Yeah, it's like, is it playful? Is it is it aggressive? It's hard to tell. Yeah, he specifically says, I've never been in love with a woman. And he has been married twice and is currently married with with children. You know, like... He, well, and they also say that he never really has sex. Yeah. 
Right. He 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 jerked off to Bugs Bunny when he was a child. He is sexually attracted to butts, uh, feet, specifically footwear, uh, and cute cartoon characters. Yeah. That's like that's like what he does. And so women, I think, are kind of objects of, you know, lust. And that's it. And like it seems like he's in an open relationship with his wife. His wife talks about cheating on him all the time and he cheats on her. And um, yeah, it's weird. But even his ex-wife sort of talks about him in a sort of positive way. I mean, first off, like she sits next to him. The fact that they can sit next to each other is is already a, a, a glowing endorsement of their relationship. They're very strange, strange, odd people. They're really into him, though. Yeah. Nobody really says anything bad about him, even people who have the right to. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No one says anything bad. And I think part of the reason is that they love how he draws them. The first wife says he drew me in a way that made me feel beautiful, in a way that no one I ever met felt about me. You know, no one ever made me feel beautiful the way that his drawings did. And he doesn't really, he doesn't lie in his drawings. That's the other part that's pretty fascinating about it. Right. Is it's not like he draws me beautiful, but it, like he just basically drew someone else. That's not it. He What he does is he he makes accentuated, I mean, this is the nature of cartooning, right? Like it's accentuated, exaggerated versions of often your worst quality. Right. If you have, you know, Angelina Jolie, for example, if you were to draw a caricature of her, it would have giant lips, you know, and certain, you know, uh, minorities may be drawn in sort of racist ways. Well, and he he does draw black people in very racist ways. Like the when you go back to those like old timey cartoons of just racist depictions of black people, that is what he does. But that's that's the thing. Like that's what he the fact the fact that it wasn't like the same really art style. It was like classic like again like 50s like like blackface stuff where they would they would like black out like a what like like the way like an old Hollywood movie would put a you know like do black makeup for a white guy where it's like it's all black and then these really big white lips. Yeah, literally just, a like, minstrel show. Yeah. Horribly racist stuff. And it's just interesting that that's what he's <laughs> well, that that's what he takes inspiration from. Yeah. He's so tied to like fit like 50s art styles and ideals and culture. It's really weird. But there's this weird thing with the women, though, where he does accentuate their most obvious features. Mm-hmm. But it's not in a sort of derogatory way. Obviously, the sexual content of these things are derogatory. But the way he portrays the bodies themselves are not in sort of a judgmental way. It's like the, he draws big butts like they're the coolest thing in the world. There's there is a sense of like power given to them that I, I, I it's the most the thing that I guess I appreciated the most about his depiction of women is that they always felt very like there is a strange like idealism to them mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. I mean, I guess for a certain woman, that is an appealing uh, quality, you know, like that is that is a way to get me at the bars. Just do it a lot of a bar napkin of. Draw my butt and I will marry you and fall in love with you. <laughs> we have to keep into some context, though. These these women that he's talking to, I think if you did this with most people around <laughs> around the blog, they'd be like, what the fuck did you just draw? These are like people. These are like the Andy Warhol art district kind of people that we're talking about. Oh, weirder than that. No, they're way weirder than that. This is like the um, the artists of the trailer park. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. Kinda. I mean, yeah, they yeah. are white trash. The people he his people, the people he surrounds himself with are. I found the scenes where he goes to the photography studio and he's just taking photographs of basically naked women. Yeah. He goes to a porno shoot. It's right. Porno and, he just, yeah. and he's just there to take photographs with them. It just made me realize, like, these are the types of people he's actively seeking to surround himself with. Like, mm-hmm. he is him and like John Waters would have been best friends. Oh, my God. Yeah. Embracing the filth. It, a little it, bit. Yeah. Embracing utter filth. And it, like it was making me think of the movie Funny Pages, which you haven't seen, Nick. Oh, uh, Nick. Which, yeah. Which is a, about this very thing. It is about this underground comic scene. Yes. It's about a kid that, you know, comes from a put together white collar family that is well off lives in a very nice house in jersey and uh, this kid all he wants to do is chase after these weirdos yeah nick imagine uh uncut gems but it's a comic book artist yes <laughs> i hate that that sounds yeah. horrible you would despise <laughs> so the good. movie it's it's good though it's good <laughs> separate apart though from all of the content of his illustrations i do think we have to put out there the man can draw the man can draw. Yeah, the man can doodle. <laughs> it's not It's not even a doodle. That guy can, like, actually really, if he really sets his mind to it, the doodles are what he does for fun. Yeah. But to think that, like, a doodle that he's doing offhandedly, off the cuff, not putting thought into it while on LSD looks that good. Yeah. If the man sits there and tries to do the fucking Mona Lisa in pencil, he could do it. Mm-hmm. Like, this guy is very talented. Yes, yeah. extremely. Um, yeah. He drew the uh, Janis Joplin album cover uh, cheap thrills the record cheap thrills he uh, it's an iconic album cover that he he drew um he uh, had a an image called keep on trucking it was a very iconic image of the 60s of a man I'm sure you've seen it of like a, a, a guy walking down the street and his lower body is sticking out way ahead of his his uh head and his head is just sort of leaning back a very iconic image that has been used time and time again. I think Amazon actually used it without his permission when the company was very young and they ended up getting sued for it. Um, so yeah, the guy and Fritz, the cat, of course, like a really big uh, brand too. Um, the, the guy definitely captures the zeitgeist and like his images are striking. Mm-hmm. I, the shocking thing for me though, is when they showed Chuck's drawings. Oh yeah. Which eventually become just these cryptic, like almost demonic uh doodles like it it gets really out there they they are insane scribblings too i mean it goes from like insane artwork to literally insane like writings to things that are completely illegible um it literally looks like like the scenes in seven where they're pulling the journals off the wall and it's just mindless scribblings in these journals with no form or function it's insane yeah when they showed the what was it there was like a a contest there was some sort of art contest that you could mail in there was like a a book and in the book there were several assignments like draw a dress on this woman or put all of these fruits into a bowl and make it and it was all these like prompts and you would send it to this company that i guess had a very prestigious art class and if your book was deemed up to the standards of the course you would get accepted into this course and both Robert and Chuck sent in 
versions of the book, Robert stuck to the rules, colored within the lines, so to speak, and Chuck did all of these weird illustrations. He included a naked woman in one of the images. Uh, he, he just ignored basically every prompt, and the class said, no thanks, you are disturbed. This is not okay. Uh, Robert, you have potential. This guy, not so much. <laughs> and I just think it's fascinating. First of all, just seeing his images, because he's also a very talented artist. But the idea that this disturbed man was Robert's inspiration, you know, and that Robert doesn't exist in his functional form, in his commercially viable form, without this deranged figure blazing the trail for him and introducing him to comics in the first place. I think that's so fucking interesting. Well, and Robert's entire... very weird fucked up personality could be the influence of just growing up a in relative isolation and b with a brother with a serious mental illness Mm -hmm. that those two things together could have really shaped his worldview to be something that again we call disturbed but again when compared next to chuck robert seems very normal and put together even when compared to his other brother max yeah yeah absolutely same i'm like max is always barefoot he seems to just sit in his apartment all day as well doing oil paintings he has weird twitches and ticks which the camera by the way let's talk about the direction in this movie for a second oh the way it holds on details the way the camera drifts Mm -hmm. mid-sentence you know will just pan to someone's feet or their hands or um there's this one shot of a of a homeless guy on the streets of San Francisco, feeding a pet rat. Uh, And we cut to it several times. The way that the camera just sort of uh, lingers on these weird idiosyncratic moments is is fascinating. It's observational. It's interesting, yeah. It's like, that's the thing about this movie. It's so much more than just the biography of this artist. So much of that informs his artwork, you know, the the various, that they even call attention to that at one point where where he... I think he asked someone to like take pictures of like just like streets or something and send send them back to him. So he had like some sort of inspiration and he was just fascinated by these like uh, traffic lights and lamp posts that just like like marred the landscape. And then yeah. and as we see that that's featured quite prominently in the backgrounds of a lot of his artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really cool. Um, you know, that detail, though, where he's in this the, the apartment with Max and. He's lingering to his hands, you know, he's where he's juggling a bullet. Yes. It's like, what is that? What's he doing? <laughs> he's only like a nine millimeter bullet. I'm just like, what the f- what is why does he even have that? <laughs> yeah. The director of this movie, actually, Ebert wrote about it in his review. Um, uh, Terry Zigoff had, according to him, a loaded gun by his bedside for two years because he was struggling with so much back pain during the production of this thing. Every night he wondered if he would get the courage to use it and kill himself. Like these are truly disturbed people. And the, the, the documentarian behind all of this is just as disturbed as the subjects. (laughs) Like it's really, it's nuts. It's really nuts. It's a bunch of crazies. Nico's favorite thing in the world. (laughs) Absolutely. You need to be able to tell this story from inside, though. Like, you need a guy that had a prior relationship with Crumb. They were in a band together. Um, You know, I think he he begged Crumb to do it. He didn't want to do it for years, but you needed, like, a close confidant to get access to this stuff. Yeah, yeah. No one else. No, you, any, anything less than a friend who would not have been able to make this movie. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, What other details from this do you want to talk about? I love the scene where they're making dinner. Just, 
and just how pleasant and, you know, something you all three of us probably understood immediately, something that relates very closely to stuff that, you know, his parents did. It just it was so classic America. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, like, like it, it's the thing It's like it's critical of, that of this of the stuff that this guy often is in his art and the way he talks or whatever. It's very clear that. He probably loves it. <laughs> maybe maybe more than a lot of things, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's living out the things that he's satirizing. Yeah. I mean, he's he's definitely I mean, that's the irony of all successful artists, right? Is that you push against the establishment and then the establishment rewards you for it. And so now I'm rich. You know, I am so anti-capitalist until my, you know, comic book sells for five million dollars. And then capitalism rules, you know. I guess the only pure uh anti-establishment guy in this whole whole ordeal is Chuck at the end of the day. Right. (laughs) Who just separates from all of it and And fucking dies. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Like, yeah, these things have utility as well, you know, even for the people that fight against it. It's like, you know, um, it's not a pleasant documentary. It's not Uh, pleasant. It's It's really, I had a great time with it, but it's not fun in the traditional sense. I, I was moved by I, I mean I, I guess in that sense I had a good time with it but like that's I that's a little misleading I would I would I, I would tell people going and don't expect to have fun with this one but it's uh but it's a trip <laughs> it's a it's a heck of a trip this movie begins with the title card David Lynch presents it's the first words you see uh and when you're watching it it makes total sense it's like this is an eraser head family like this is <laughs> the exact kind of people that lynch i mean maybe even more extreme than eraser head uh with 50 satire r- yeah, sure exactly right yeah. uh, then you read afterwards actually had no involvement in the making of this they asked him for years during the financing period can you give us money for this he said no 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 then the movie finally gets made it's all been paid for then he comes craw- crawling back and uh, i guess they just sort of slapped his name on it um to help the movie get released um but i'm not even sure money ever exchanged hands it is interesting though how lynchian <laughs> so many of these characters are the characters specifically yeah not not nothing about like the way it's made but uh there is certainly the the rooms are lynchian and like you said yeah the characters are lynchian the filth is lynchian it's got that very specific uh kind of grit mm-hmm. this movie just made me want to take a bath yeah. Well, I wanted me. I wanted to bathe the people on screen. I wasn't really interested about Give bathing. Give a sponge myself. bath. The Just, fucking yeah. the, the sweat on Chuck's forehead, the greasy hair, his fucking teeth. Oh mm. my god! And there's another detail. He just didn't give a shit about his his hygiene really at all. The fact that he would say like, "Yeah, I I, I bathe every like six weeks. I yeah, I have these two hundred dollars set of dentures upstairs. I just don't wear them. Why mm. would I? You know? You know what though? There was this very brief moment that I caught, and I'm sure there were others. Maybe you guys noticed it or some others, where Chuck is talking about how he hasn't bathed for six weeks. He doesn't bathe, whatever. He doesn't care. He's like, oh, what do I care? I don't go out. I don't go. And then he looks at the camera for a brief second, and he gets uncomfortable. Mm. Like, he remembers he's being filmed, and he remembers this is an orchestrated thing. This is not true life currently. Mm-hmm. You, you know what he keeps doing? Fixing his hair. Yeah, yeah, he starts fixing his hair like that. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's got to look okay. Yeah, it. I I know someone like this, and he's older, and he's not quite like that, 
Um, he's actually like a really intelligent guy. But I think at a certain point in his life, he just decided like, why try anymore? Like, and if for whatever reason, whether it was like rejection or, you know, career or whatever, he just sort of decided I'm good. And he is a guy that if you talk to him, totally pleasant, you don't imagine, like it doesn't seem on its surface, like he has any sort of trauma or it, it just feels like he is totally content and happy in life wearing the same clothes he's worn for 30 years, not really trying to hold a steady job and coasting. And I do wonder often what's going on under the surface there, you know? And that like that was the one thing I thought of in this movie. It's like you guys are the way that you speak about your aversion and your repulsion towards society. You know, it, he, they speak with such confidence and such assuredness. You know, every time they say, what's the point? Society is evil. Capitalism is evil. These structures are evil. It's like, well, actually, no, there's a utility to this. Right. And you know it. But for some reason, something happened to you where you refused to engage with it. You know, it's more them making excuses a lot of the time. Those are the people I am concerned about. I am concerned about people like that, you know, where it's like they are so sure that their way of life is right for them. And it's like, and you know, and all of this, uh, uh, this like, um, this culture of like always telling people to be them true, their true selves, you know, and to reach inside and to be who you are and to not consider what others think of you. And this constant, just like gratification culture, like there is a consequence to that. You know, maybe societal pressures are a good thing. Maybe dress codes at restaurants are a good thing. You know, (laughs) maybe the fact that a woman will reject you because you stink is a good, it's a net positive, you know? And these are people that have gone so far in the opposite direction of, you know, everything inside is right. And if you don't accept me, that's because you're wrong. Well, no, not really. Dude, not fucking really. What is it? The id ego and super ego? Yes. There's a reason that we have these. There, there's a biological and probably uh, a a reason based in our survival that we have these sort of separations of self mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. built into our brains. Right. As a sort of checks and balances, right? Right. Yes. And yeah, I, and part of that is a is conformity, right? Conformity does serve a purpose it's like i think non-conformists are people that assume that the the culture at large is evil so their conformity in said culture is in some way an endorsement of the evil right and so they throw the baby out with the bathwater. but the truth of it is society exists for a reason these are rules that we have developed over centuries and yes there's oppression built into it and yes there are bad things that come up yes 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 but on the whole right the thing that we built here works and is built to last and your buy-in is good for you conforming is good for you to a certain extent and so that's why you know these anarchists these these people that um only believe in what's in here right and not what's out there uh can end up like chuck 
right? Like that, you have to draw the line somewhere, right? And listen, you know me, my personality has often been like, you know, fuck these people. I'm going to, you know, I'm a contrarian. It's it's what makes me a, 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 a interesting podcaster is I argue with people all the time. You're not really a contrarian though. I think you got to draw the line, right? I think he is a contrarian. I think, no, because he'll, he'll actively take opinions he doesn't agree with. That's right. To be contrarian. That's right. That's what he means. I think Nico doesn't believe firmly enough that he is always right to firmly believe in any one thing. Uh, sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're wishy-washy. I'm very wishy-washy. And frankly, sane people should be wishy-washy. I am always freaked out by people who are so confident they're right. Yes, but I also think the second anyone tells me something... Or the second that that uh, like put it this way, if I am in the room with uh, nine conservatives and I'm the tenth guy, I become liberal. When I am in a room with with ten with nine liberals, I become the one conservative. Like that that's just my personality. It's like the second a consensus forms around something, I get uncomfortable and I feel the need to fight it. If you were in a jury, you'd be the one holdout. I'm jury number eight, baby. Damn straight. I am Henry Fonda. As soon as the rest of them came around, you'd be like, well, exactly. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I'm not so sure anymore. If the glove don't fit, you must have quit, man. <laughs> like, I'd be that guy. Yes. There'd be another murder. <laughs> and it'd be you. You'd be the victim. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's kind of my that's kind of my vibe. But you got to draw the line somewhere at a certain point. You got to be like, well, maybe I agree with the consensus on showering. Yes, I would hope you I would hope you would. Maybe I agree with the consensus on brushing your teeth every day. Like and I think there there is a part of me, too. Again, this is the balance in life, right? There should be a fuck it side that says I'm going to be me. But there should be a I have to impress you side as well, because like you need others too. like you need to conform to others in order to live a happy life. Well, yeah, that's the, that's what we, 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 we've been saying this. It's just that when it comes down to survival, you need an, an element of that. Otherwise, you're going to kill yourself. Right. Um, anyway, this makes me feel good about the world. Hell yeah. This this was very therapeutic. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else about Crumb? Uh, I don't think I'd like him. I don't like him either. In real life, like I, I can't it's hard to just I, I can't separate how I feel about people that I don't really know. Like, that's just a different thing. Like, you know, the way I feel about celebrities is pointless because they're a brand. They're not a person. Mm -hmm. They're not a person until you meet them and you are actually engaging mm. face to face. Uh, Crumb, I don't think I would like him in real life. I really don't. Has a big cock, though. He really accurately portrays himself as the skinny, bad posture, myopic man he is, some people wonder if he doesn't exaggerate the size of his penis, which always appears awfully big in the comics. Robert does not exaggerate anything. He is endowed with one of the biggest penises in the world. Apparently he does. Apparently he is one of the largest phalluses mm. in humankind. Well endowed. Of humankind, yeah. Yeah, and he doesn't use it. He just masturbates. He doesn't such weird details <laughs> that we have we know likes piggybacks that's the thing to understand not giving receiving right 
yes. being piggybacked Receive- by women. By women. Now, this is the thing about those scenes where he is receiving the piggybacks. Like, in retrospect, those are sexual acts to that For him. Robert Crumb. That's yeah, right. to him they are. Yeah, he did it with the porn stars. Yeah. Yeah. They gave him piggybacks. So weird. That's why he loves stocky women so much is that they're a good foundation. Like, he, you know. Do we even bring up the fact that his uh, his older brother had a crush on a little boy? They gloss over that. Yeah. Bit. Um, they do talk about how he's a serial molester. His, oh, Max. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Max, Max is, is a, is a st- right. Who, and like he talks about openly, like he would just like molest. He never got to the point of rape. He said, it said it, there was a lot of work he had to do before rape, but he said he used to molest Asian women in his twenties. It's a good template for what not to do, kids. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to scare my kids one day. If they don't get out of bed, I'm going to be like, we're watching Crumb today. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down and shut up. <laughs> when they sleep in and they don't go to church. <laughs> it's like kids are sitting down for mass. <laughs> first it's first it's crumb then it's gum gummo right exactly this is oh, why boy. you bathe and this is why you get up early and leave the house it was good it was really good it's just i don't know if i'll watch it anytime soon again no i'm not planning on running this one back no <laughs> uh all right so documentary month off to a rollicking start two great ones back to back Adam, I think you are up next to select one. So think about that and uh, we'll do that next week. You also have to assign us a movie of your choosing for after documentary month because Brendan Fraser won the Oscar, basically. <laughs> well, those two. I mean, yeah, that was kind of it. But it was the it was Michelle Yeoh. I think that's what sealed it for me. Yeah, I mean, but it was. Yeah, I, I changed my vote and right. We all kind of knew Michelle Yeoh was going to win, but he had to switch somewhere. Yeah. So I went Butler. Um, So you are going to assign us a a movie. You won the Oscar game, and I'm very mad about it. Still mad about it. (laughs) Spent all that fucking time watching Bardo. Just to make sure that you won this shit. Yeah. And then I, I I was ahead by two at the he end of the night. He just stumbles in. He draws a funny pattern on his ballot. Like, you know, like a like an idiot taking the SATs on the Scantron. Full disclosure, I wrote my my list about an hour before we met up. No, of course. And I, I toiled with it for uh, two weeks. I did nothing but study the... Yeah, oh my God. It was a different selection every day. Um, Nico, you, you, you study too much. You just got to go into the test. Just got to do it. Exactly. It's as simple as that. Don't study so much, man. It's just always C. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That was the thing they used to tell us in school, right? Yep. It's always yeah, that's C. That's bullshit. C was the most common answer. I don't know about that. I did break my 20 question quizzes in fifth grade to the point that... Uh, so I found that every four questions, every grouping of four questions, one through four, uh-huh. one selection would be A, one would be C or B, one would be C and one would be D. Right. Oh, yeah. So if I figured out three of them, I always knew the fourth one. Right. Okay. And so I, I got hundreds like five weeks in a row on these tests only because I knew three out of four questions. What a life hack. Well, I told my teacher. I was like, these tests are no good. Yo, you're like Damon at the end of rounders, like telling KGB his his tell. You don't do that. You got to sit on that shit. No, because when I was a kid, 
I didn't give a fuck about grades, but I did care that people knew how smart people I was. People knew how smart. Oh, see, yeah. So I needed the teacher to know I'm smarter than you. I'm smarter than your fucking test, dude. You and me had that in common, bro. Yeah. yeah. And so I told her, <laughs> and then the next week we took a test, and she switched them. Oh. She 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 found these. She was getting these online, so like she didn't make the questions really, but she like I think she went in and switched a couple of them so that it didn't do that anymore. Yeah. That's so funny. I was just thinking about because we were talking, we were doing this movie about cartooning. I took a cartooning class in middle school. Did you ever take these, Nick? I feel like I might have taken a cartooning class once. I don't remember. There was like um, th- there was some organization, some nonprofit. It, it was like a, a national endowment for the arts kind of thing, and they would come to these schools and. Uh, coinciding with a particular unit that we would learn that we were learning, they would have all of these like creative arts classes. So um, one year we were learning about the Civil War. So there was uh, like a, a theater uh, instructor that came in and like the students would put on like a sketch. Uh, there was a music class and there was this cartooning class. I feel like I remember this kind yeah. of thing. And they did it a couple years in a row. And this cartoon artist, this comic book artist, came and taught us how to draw cartoons. And the the whole thing was like um the 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 thing I remember vividly was the unit was the Holocaust. The social studies unit was the Holocaust. So we had to draw cartoons over the top accentuated caricatures depicting something in the Holocaust. And I remember that does not sound like a good match. Right, it's crazy, but it, I actually found it to be like really instructive just like a- as a creative exercise of like, oh, we're allowed to do this. It was a really cool day of school because it was like, you know, the-, the entire unit was this somber. We're watching Schindler's List. Right. We're learning about, you know, the atrocities. We're learning about Auschwitz or whatever. How can you make this funny? And I wonder if I still have the comic strip. I don't even know. It- and it- I was thinking about it as I was watching Crumb of like I had to figure out a way to say something that was kind of satirical and not like dour about the Holocaust. And I ended up doing this strip about like insurance agents selling life insurance at Auschwitz. Oh my God. And this idea, like there was such a money-making opportunity and now I'm thinking back on it. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is such like a weird anti-capitalist anti-government thing that I wasn't even doing consciously. I was just like, how do I do something funny about the, how do I make the Holocaust funny? And I, and I think that I mean, you the, don't. Well, the premise was it was like farmers Jesus. insurance is going to Auschwitz. And do, do you want to buy life insurance? And I remember that day of class. And, and, yeah, I just thought it was interesting. And I, I was wondering if you remembered that. I don't know if you were in the class or not. I don't think so. Not that one. Yeah. I feel like I remember taking a puppetry class. Yeah. 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 That was. Yeah, another I think one. I did yeah. one on puppetry in. Was it maybe. Maybe Civil War, yeah. something like that. Sounds mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah. The instructor was a really weird guy. The guy he wore like a. <laughs> I love those people though. Yeah. He he wore like a beret. Oh God. He's like one of these dudes, <laughs> and he was like a real overweight guy. Like he was like three hundred pounds, and I remember his name was Joe, because at the end of the class, after we had inked and colored in the, because it was like a day long class, it was like seven hours of this guy. At the end of the class, he put on this thing called Joe Eperty, where he would ask <laughs> trivia questions, Jeopardy oh, style. No. And it was the first time I remember 
realizing I was a loser. It was the first, because he would ask old pop culture questions. Like, for example, where did the line, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn come from? No one in the class knew it but me. And when I tell you guys, I knew every question. I knew every fucking question. And it was the first day where I realized like, whoa, like I'm not normal. This is not <laughs> normal that I know all this stuff. Like, you know, everybody was like impressed, but I was like, wait, what is happening here? Like, why doesn't everybody know this? Like there were some of these questions where I was like, I thought everyone knew this. I thought oh. everyone knew what Rocky's last name was. Like, I thought everyone, like, isn't this common? Like, and there were some questions where the guy was like, how the hell do you know that? Like, he actually said to me, he's like, how the hell do you know that one? Like, I threw that in there because no one knows that one. And I knew it. And I, it was, uh, yeah, it was quite a day in middle school. All this adult stuff. These kids yeah. don't know this shit. Adults probably do, though. So. The adult was stunned that I knew. Yeah. It's like, you guys don't know Gone with the Wind? What? You guys haven't. You guys haven't taken a, a rainy Saturday in the seventh grade to watch Gone <laughs> with the Wind for four Gone hours? Gone with the Wind, right? <laughs> I just watched Gone Gone with the Wind the other day. It's funny you bring that up. It's a great yeah. film. I still haven't seen it. It's, it's one that I feel like it's got a highly, highly unlikable character at at its center, but it's a very good movie. <laughs> sure does, and we don't give a damn about her. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, there's a trip down memory lane for you. Uh, maybe I'll I'll dig out that comic and try to get it published in Mad Magazine or something. Or you could burn it. I wonder if Zap Comics is <laughs> still around. Just get rid of it. Shred it. <laughs> just, you know, delete this audio too. It's <laughs> just maybe, maybe never. <laughs> I'm going to look for it. All right. We love you. We'll be back next week with more documentaries here on Why Is This a Thing? We'll see you.